Hey guys, today on So What Else, we have Pastor Chris Brown. He is such a nice guy. I so enjoyed speaking with him. He's a pastor, speaker, author. He just came out with a book called Restored, and he talks all about it today in our interview. He shares with us his incredible life story. He had a really crazy childhood, just from homelessness to abuse to violence to many different father figures in and out of the house. You name it, he's been through it. Um, He talks to us today all about that, his childhood, and just how he got to where he is today. He talked about the baggage from that that he carried into adulthood, how he's dealt with it, things that still impact him to today. It was a really impactful, awesome conversation. There is so much to get out of it um, about how to just use our pain and the pain of our past and to do something amazing with it in our present. I know that you are absolutely going to enjoy it. Um, If you decide that you would love to get Chris's book, the link is in the show notes, but also Chris mentions in this interview that the Audible version is really great. So if you do want to get the Audible version, go to audibletrial.com slash SWE. That's audibletrial.com slash SWE. And you can get a free trial of Audible and you could get Chris's book as a download and you would help the podcast in the process. Okay. Enjoy this episode. Hey, Chris, welcome to So What Else. Yes. Such an honor, Caitlin. Thank you. Yes. Now, listen, I have to call it out before we get started. And I know you probably, you know what I'm going to say, because everyone probably says this to you. Do you get confused with the R&B singer all the time? When you're on interviews and stuff like that. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I speak a lot around the country yeah. and uh, it gives me a lot of really easy uh, intro ammo when I when I start off talking. So um, I make sure that they know that, um, you know, I'm not that Chris Brown. And <laughs> they're aware that I'm aware that I'm not that Chris Brown. I assure them that there will be no dancing and no singing and no rapping and And uh, I assure them I'm much nicer to Rihanna as well. So all is good. For real. Oh my goodness. And something that's very smart that you did that I noticed is like your website, your social media and everything is Chris Brown on air. Because I kept, you know, at first, if you're someone's Googling you, who's coming up? The other Chris Brown and how he beat up (laughs) Rihanna. You know what I mean? And that's excellent that you are making a new name. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, with a name like Chris Brown, to get all of the different social media platforms and the website to all line up, impossible. You have to you have, you have, you have to go to on air to make it happen. It's funny because I don't really have an active podcast right now, so uh, a lot of people joke around me and say that I need to start Chris Brown off air. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love that. No, it's so true because like my husband's name is Scott Elliott, which obviously there's no one famous with that name, but it's just such a basic name, Scott Elliott. There's yeah. a million of them on Facebook, on Instagram, on what like he can't get any email address. Like he can't, you know, it's like they're taken. It's just a basic name. Yeah. So what are you gonna do? <laughs> <laughs> Well, we are just so thankful that you uh, came on here to talk to us. I'm so excited to talk about your story, about your book. Um, but before we get into it, would you just kind of introduce yourself to us? Like, who are you? Tell me about your family, what you do. Yeah, so I'm a letdown Chris Brown. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I live in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, actually just south of Nashville, a little town called Columbia. And uh, Nashville is kind of booming. And uh, many people know about Franklin just south of Nashville. Yeah. That's booming also. 
So everyone's kind of going out a little bit further. And so the suburbs about an hour out are kind of exploding. So I'm part of this uh, small town, Columbia, Tennessee, and I've got a wife of uh, 22 years. Wow. Her name is Holly. And we got three kids that are 17, 16, and 13. And we're uh, entering this next year where all three of our kids will be in high school at the same time, which will be a blast. And they play football, baseball, basketball, cheerleading, gymnastics, tennis, soccer. They, they, they literally play wow. like uh, almost every sport. So that we have a lot of fun, that's for sure. But um, I've been in ministry um, for like 20 years. And I know that um, many people listening in are, are not necessarily people of faith. Um, but um, when I say ministry, it could be a lot of different ways of ministry. It could be a Christian school. It could be pastoring at a church. It could be a lot of different things. But my wife and I have always been passionate about making a difference. Mm-hmm. And for us, being faith-based people, it's making an eternal difference in people's lives. Uh, so uh, that's kind of who we are. It's kind of tra- made us travel all over the country. I've lived a little bit in, in uh, Florida and North Carolina, Colorado, California, and now in Tennessee. So I've kind of been all over the place, and uh, I absolutely love all things ministry. So that's a little bit about uh, you know what wakes me up in the morning. I love it. Do you, how do you feel about your kids being in the teenage phase? Like all of them at the same time, do you like it? Do you miss the little kid phase? Yeah. You know, I, for me, I I feel like complaining has never got anybody anywhere. So for me, I I choose to look at parenting and it's really easy for me because I genuinely believe this, that every season that I've parented has, has gotten better. So Mm -hmm. the season that I'm currently in has always been the best season I've always been in. And it kind of makes me look like a liar but it just keeps getting better. So yeah. when I was there, kids were like five, four, and two. I'm like, this is the best it's ever been. Mm-hmm. And then when they were like, you know, 10, nine, and seven, this is the best it's ever been. It just keeps getting better. And uh, the thing that I'm enjoying right now is it's not physically draining on me because they're getting more and more independent. Yeah. The thing that's a little bit harder now is that uh, now you're walking them through some major, they're going through some major emotional pain for the first time in their lives. And uh, that's draining you know, to walk them through some of these major emotional uh, pains that they're going through. So that's every season has its ups and downs. And the season right now is connecting with them over their emotions. That's a big win. So I think you can look at it with a bad perspective or you can look at it with a good perspective. And for me, it's really easy to look at it from a good perspective because they're all three great kids. Yeah. That's so good to hear. Like for me, cause I'm like way behind you in the parenting phase. Like my kids are five and three, but my husband and I say that all the time. Like every new phase, we're just like, oh, this is so much more fun. Like there's so much more fun now than when they were like getting into everything or like this is so much easier now or this is so much better. And so every every new phase we say that, you know, and my husband said to me the other day, like, oh, I just want to freeze time because I feel like this is going to be the time that we always want to come back to. And I was like, you know what though? I think it's just going to get better and better. I think we're just going to, every phase, we're going to feel like we like them more and more because we can connect with them more and more as they get older. Well, that's what I've experienced. Yeah. Yeah. And you're totally right about like, that is something that scares me. Like when they're teenagers and dealing with like real stuff, you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. right now, is it draining to have little kids? Totally. Cause it's like, you know, like my kids were sick last week and I was like, oh my gosh, someone saved me from this. You know what I mean? It's like, they're both up all night. They're coughing, they're puking. It's like the whole thing. And you're like, oh my gosh, like I hate this, but their problems are small. You know, it's like, they're upset about a little kid thing, but when they're teenagers and it's like, there's dating, there's friendships, there's thinking about college or whatever. It's like, those are big things, you know? And like, that scares me. So you'll have to write a book about it. 
Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I love it. All right. So listen, last week, your book hit the shelves. It's called Restored, Transforming the Sting of Your Past into Purpose for Today. So congratulations, first of all, on the book hitting the shelves. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, my first ever solo project. It was a it was a big undertaking, especially with COVID. It was like like an eighteen to twenty four month process. Uh, wow. Just everything was just slow, you know, getting it to the shelves. So we're excited that it actually launched. It's crazy how COVID has made everything slow. Like things yeah. that you wouldn't think. Like, what does that have to do with that? Like, well, it just ev- everything is slower. Everything is backed up. So congratulations to you. That's amazing. And you know, it's Thank so you. crazy when I first saw your book. And I saw the tagline, transforming the sting of your past into purpose for today. I was like, that's basically like the purpose of my podcast. You know what I mean? Like when I started this podcast a little over a year ago, you know, I I had a vision for what I wanted it to be. But you know how when you start something and then it kind of like morphs into its own thing, right? I knew I wanted to have people on to share their story, but I wasn't exactly sure what that was going to look like. And it's really, really come into this identity of like people coming on and sharing about a really hard thing they've been through and how they've walked through it. You know, we've had people on who've talked about addiction or loss or divorce or infertility, you know, things like that. And that's kind of what this podcast has morphed into. And so when I saw your book, I was like, well, I got to try to get this guy on because this is like, (laughs) this is perfect. And you have a really, really incredible, incredible story of transformation. So I would love for you to just tell us as much as you can just about what are you talking about when you're saying the sting of your past? What made your past challenging? Like, what was that for you? Yeah, so I think it's important for us all to know that, you know, that we all carry a weight of pain with us and it's what we do with it that matters. Uh, I, you know, I wrote a little bit about my story just because that happens to be the one that I, my story is the one that I'm the expert in. I, yep. I lived it. I could write about it. Um, and I just want everyone to know that there is a, a, a kind of a thread of my story throughout the story, but, it, but throughout the book, but it's, it really has a lot of application on what we can apply to our lives too. Um, but uh, for me, uh, my story was, um, you know, I grew up with tremendous um it's not what you would think is ideal. That's for sure. You know, to some people that see me today are like, no way you had that kind of upbringing. Mm-hmm. And so it was completely laced with um, poverty and violence and uh, tragedy, instability, drugs, uh, just um, death, um, attempted suicide, homelessness, uh, you, you name it, um, <clears throat> throughout my childhood. And I lost three parents before um they all turned 45. So between my wife and I, so miscarriages, I mean, you, you name it. I don't, I don't, I'm trying to think of what's left to, what's left to add to right. the list, oh. but uh, it's been kind of a, a unique journey for sure. But, uh, you know, I didn't know any different growing up. So it was not this big, huge feel sorry for myself pity party. Mm-hmm. But now that I'm, um, you know, 20, 30 years into a stable life, I now look back and it's like, okay, what can I learn from all that? Because I do carry a ton of baggage. It shows itself in different ways throughout my adult life. So it's, what do I do with that? Um, I think we do have, whether you're faith, um, a faith-based person or not, I do think we have a calling on our life to, to make something, to leverage our past, to help other people. And uh, so that's what the book's about. I agree with that so much. I think that's that's so important. We could allow the stuff that we've been through to destroy us or we could use it 
you know, to help other people. And I think that's huge. So how is it that you were, that you grew up in an environment like that? Like you said, you know, homelessness, violence, things like that. And somehow now, like here you are, right? Like you're a husband of over 20 years, father, author, pastor, like how does that happen? Yeah. So we all know people that that has happened in their life where they were, they were brought out of very, you know, uh, rough circumstances. And now they don't live in those circumstances. There's others that they grew up in that and they stayed in it. Yeah. There's also another whole pocket of people that grew up great and then found struggles. And so we all are kind of on a different journey and I I can't over, I can't uh, um, under emphasize the fact that there is consequences to our decisions. Mm-hmm. There's a, a sowing and reaping principle of like you make good decisions and good things happen. Not always, but probably there's a sowing reaping. If you sow corn, you're going to reap corn. Corn's going to grow. Yeah. You can't sow corn and then you know, and and then be upset that you didn't get beans. You didn't sow beans. And so there is a decision decision making. That might be another whole podcast. Yeah. Um. But for me, uh, I, I put it to. Um, it's really hard for me to answer this question and not be super faith based. But I yeah. truly believe that that God um, literally had his hand on my life and uh, has put me around. And this is really, I'm getting to your question here. The, there's, this, there's a principle called the proximity principle. Mm-hmm. And it is this idea of you become a lot of, in a lot of ways, who you hang out with. Um, yep. You've heard it said before, when you were a kid, you hang out with trash, you begin to smell like it. Yep. You know, uh, in the Bible, it says in first Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, it says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good behavior. Mm-hmm. Another translation of the Bible says corrupts um, good habits. And so for me, I didn't have a father growing up, tons of fatherlessness. And I, we might even get into that with my this big, huge roller coaster with men in my life. But what I did have, I could surround myself around good coaches, good supervisors, uh, good teachers, um, uh, mentors, people around me that can pour into my life, including my friends, parents. A lot of those people came through. I truly believe as a person of faith that God put those people in my path. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, we have a choice when we're young, we say, Hey, we're either going to be like this and we're attracted to it. And we're going to, re- we're going to continue it, or we're going to rebel against this lifestyle. And we're going to do everything the opposite of what we've been taught. Mm-hmm. For me, I can remember, I know this is a story-based podcast, so I'll give a little bit of a snippet of the book real here, uh, real yeah. quick. Um, there's a part in the book where I talk about um, uh, my 11-year-old birthday, and I was sitting down uh, on the floor in a dark, empty, roach-infested apartment. Uh, it was apartment 217. It was on the corner of Edwards and Warner on the wrong side of Huntington Beach, California, on a bad, bad part of town. And it was absolutely silent in the apartment. Uh, we had a couple, uh, no food, no furniture, just a couple upside down cardboard boxes that we were using as end tables. And uh, I can remember looking out this second story balcony window and I was wishing that my birthday looked much differently. I'm sitting there in absolute silence since my birthday. Of course, I'm wishing for uh, bounce houses and friends over and laughter and uh, some ice cream cake. But instead, I'm sitting there and I'm replaying the last several years of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew that uh, multiple father figures going to jail wasn't part of the family dream. Mm-hmm. I knew that um, going from abuse shelter to abuse shelter to abuse shelter wasn't part of the plan 
uh, sleeping in the back seat of a 1979 Dodge Diplomat, sleeping underneath piers and bridges. I knew that was jacked up. I was 11. I didn't have an answer to life, but I knew it was right. messed up. Well, in this moment, I can remember turning my head, uh, turning my head over to the kitchen. I, I was kind of looking out the second story balcony window. I looked into the kitchen, nothing in the kitchen, no uh, can openers, no coffee makers, no dishes, no paper products. And I can remember uh, my mom was in the kitchen. That was really the only thing was in the kitchen was my mom. And she was silently leaning over the kitchen counter. It was like these uh, chipped brown Formica countertops. And uh, I can remember the look on her face. As an 11 year old boy, I didn't know who was at fault. I didn't know if it was dad. I didn't know if it was dad number two, dad number three, boyfriend number seven. I didn't know if it was mom. I didn't know who was at fault. I didn't even know if it was the economy. I didn't even know what the economy is. Right. I didn't know anything about life. I just knew this is jacked up. And I saw this look on my mom's face. And it was this look of hopelessness. And it was at that moment as an 11 year old boy that I said, this will never happen on my watch. Mm. I don't know anything about life. I don't know how to pay bills. I don't even know how to make money. I don't know anything, but I do know when I have a family one day, it's not going down like that. And so just quick version, I went through middle school, went through high school, have no idea how, by the grace of God, uh, graduated, met my wife, went to college, all that stuff, got two good jobs. Well, as an adult, I uh, got two good jobs and uh, saved some money and we started flipping homes. Well, I got into this flipping homes and got greedy and yeah. decided I'm going to borrow a million dollars and flip eight houses at a time. Um, this is back in 2007, right before the recession, when they were just giving out loans like candy. Yep. Well, I was one of those guys and I borrowed a million dollars when I probably only made at the time 60 grand. How does a 60 grand employee or person get a million dollars? I have no idea how. Right. Um, it's not their fault, though. It's my fault for doing it. But I did it. Um, and the next thing you know, the recession hit. I couldn't sell the properties. I couldn't run them out. I couldn't. I was sitting on vacant properties. So I paid $10,000 a month for 36 months until we went bankrupt. Oh. And uh, here I was as an adult. I had done the same exact thing that my mom did. We were completely broke and busted. I got there in a different way, yeah. but I still got there. So when you're asking that question, how have you turned a page and you're not like that? I've still made some big mistakes as an adult. Um, sure. And I talk about this in the book, how sometimes we make mistakes and we do the same mistakes, but it's what you do and how you leverage those mistakes and the pain from those mistakes to help others. An example of the entire book, I've coached people in personal finance for free for 15 years. Don't yeah. I don't charge a dime. And I try to help people avoid this, what I, I've coached thousands of people at would have been $100 an hour, $200 an hour, and I've done it for free to give back yeah. because I want to transform the pain of what I felt in that courtroom. And I want to, I want to transform that into purpose for today. That's amazing. And who better to do that than someone like you, right? Like, you know how sometimes there's people like passing out financial advice and you're like, you were born rich and always had everything you needed. Like, what do you like? You know what I mean? Like you might know a lot from the books, but you haven't like lived it, you know? And like someone like you, it's like, you've lived it in multiple different ways. I think that's, that's amazing. So growing up, it was just you and your mom, basically. Like, do you have siblings? Yeah, I've got uh, two older brothers that were from a prior marriage. And okay. as you read the book, you'll realize there's like the, the dysfunction and the dynamics of all these different families all coming together for seasons is really whacked. Uh, I don't, my family tree is like a family forest. So it's, it's, it's kind of it's jacked up. And I have one little brother that's a half brother who during most of the story in the book, he's, he's in there quite a bit. 
he's eight years younger. And me, for me as an eight-year-old, I was actually kind of quasi his dad sure. through all this. And I'm the one that kind of raised him from a, from a, from a male standpoint. Yeah. So as you've mentioned, like you had no constant male figure in your life and you experienced a lot of violence and things like that. Can you tell us a little bit about just your relationship with men, like throughout your life? Yeah. So dad, number one, when I was about two years old, um, walked down on my mom and just said, I, I, his excuse was, or his reason was that she was too fidgety and wouldn't sit down. What? Like she just wouldn't oh. relax enough. And he's like, dude, can you just chill with my mom? And I had for, for the longest time, all the way through like four years of marriage, when I was like 26, I actually believed that, that that's oh. what it was. Oh. And my wife had to talk sense to me and go, Chris, there's more to it. But yeah. I actually, it's funny. I looked up to him and I always wanted to reestablish a relationship with him because he, um, you know, was a stable, a stable guy, had a great job, was, you know, uh, super good looking and good at sports. And I just always looked up to him. He just wanted nothing to do with fatherhood. So he walked out and um, then from then on out, and this will, this, this story will get a little bit quicker here is that my mom from then on out out of survival went and found the nearest guy possible. Yeah. And as you can know, that is not a good formula. So mm-hmm. she would meet the next guy in a bar, the next guy in a bar, the next guy in a bar, whoever would hit on her, whoever would treat her like an object. And she really, in a sense would sell her body. Um, what she would do is in, in, in exchange for companionship and everything that comes with companionship and all the intimacy that comes with companionship, she would sell herself so that they would help her with shelter and bills and transportation and whatever it took. And so she did that for the rest of my childhood. So we're talking about dozens and dozens of men that mm. came in and out of the house and more than half of them were extremely violent. So how did that carry through to you as you got older? Did you find that you naturally had trouble trusting men? Because I know that sports are a huge part of your story. Did you struggle with coaches or were you, or was it like the opposite where you were like, oh, like this is a safe guy. Like I want to like latch on to this. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, a minute ago I said, I got through middle school and high school and I have no idea, but by the grace of God, really it was uh, God used sports. Uh, I, I never wanted to go home naturally. Yeah. And so I uh, wanted to drown myself in sports. So fall, winter, spring, football, baseball, basketball, whatever I could do to not go home. And so yeah. I was the first one to practice. I was the last one to leave. I would work twice as hard as everybody else. Why? For two reasons. One, I didn't want to go home. Mm-hmm. And number two, it's because I was starving for acceptance and I was starving for, I'm so proud of you, Chris. Yeah. I was starving for that a boy. I was starving for like, that was the best hit yet. Oh my goodness. You're getting so good, Chris. And I was just a people pleaser on steroids. Sure. And I would yeah. do anything for a male figure to go, Chris, Hey, you're bulking up, man. You're getting strong. Look at those muscles. And uh, I just craved that all the way from man, I'm telling you as early as like maybe 11, 12 years old, all the way until I was like 22 and a senior in college doing anything I can to please a, a man. And, um, you know what, I was, I was fortunate to really serve under some and, and play under some really good coaches that didn't take advantage of that. They actually really poured into me and loved me. And so I'm very, very thankful for all those men that God put in my place. Cause I had some serious gaps on yeah. like, how do you tie a tie? How do you change a tire? Sure. How do you balance that? 
I know the silver audience, I'm going to lose them on this one, but how do you balance a checkbook? So I didn't really need a, you know, how do you work PayPal? That wasn't there yet. So, sure, yeah. but, uh, but anyway, so I've just, that's how it's really helped me. And then on the, from an adult standpoint, from being a husband and a father now, uh, everyone asked me, how do you, how do you do that? How do you do yeah. parenting and father? Well, here's my rule. Uh, two things really. One is what would, what would my parents done? Okay. Yeah. Do the exact opposite. Yeah. <laughs> right. And number two was, Hey, put myself in their shoes, whether my kids have been eight, 11, 17, or anything in between, what would I want in this situation? What would I want my dad to do? So at the time of this podcast recording this morning, uh, my kids started at a new school right in the middle of a semester. Oh, wow. And so there's this shifting from a, a private school to a public school. Yeah. Um, he's been private schooled for, I think like three or four years. He's going to a big public school all the anxiety that comes with that. Yeah. Right. What would I want if it was my first day of school? And he's very independent, very low maintenance, probably would never bring anything up. This morning I woke up. What would I want? My alarm clock went off. I canceled my workout with my workout buddy, went downstairs and just stood by him while he got ready. And then the way he's combing his hair and eating a cereal. And then uh, Holly came down and we prayed over him and prayed like, like, um, like boldly, for yeah. his future and for his influence at this new, at this new school. And so the, those, that's just an example of like yeah. how I go through the filter. How do I, how, what would I want when I was a kid? Totally. So how did faith come into your life? So you, you know, grew up obviously super tumultuous childhood. At what point did you have a faith experience? Like when did this become part of your life? <laughs> yeah. So I went to a, um, a public school and absolutely loved my experience. I didn't know anything about faith at all. There happened to be a guy on the baseball team and there was really just one of them that really stood out to me. He would go to the parties. He'd be around all the environments, but he just never, you know, engaged in the things that probably teenagers should not be engaging in, whether you're faith-based or not. Right. Um, but he just was just something different about him that he had discipline he was a peculiar person that I was always attracted to. I found out later it's because of his faith, right. but I was just wanted to be around this guy, super stable family, uh, just a great dude. And uh, he had a, a baseball scholarship about an hour and a half North of where we lived in Florida. And I was like, Hey dude, I just want to hang out with you. I'll just go with you. I don't know. I've never thought about college. Nobody in my family lineage has ever gone to college for any reason. And I was like, I don't even know anything about this college stuff, but I got nothing to do this weekend. Again, I don't want to be home. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I'm going to go wherever you go. Yeah. And uh, I went and I was pretty successful in baseball in high school. And I was like, whatever. I was like, I'll just, I'll catch for you at this tryout. Uh, he was going to try out for a baseball team. And I went out there and, and, and come to find out I got a full ride scholarship to this Christian school wow. by me just going out there and just tossing the ball around. He's like, wait a minute, does your friend pitch? Oh, wait. Okay. Let's, let's just see a couple things. Let's, let's see him in the cage. <laughs> and then, you know, next thing is, no, we want a full ride for your scholarship. Oh, uh, it's like it's something amazing. like, I don't know, 70 or $80,000 at the time. Wow. Um, so it was pretty cool. And then, um, you know, about two weeks into uh, being at this private school, Christian school, because it's funny in my entry that said, Hey, do, are you a Christian? I said, sure. you need to be a Christian to get into this. Do you love Jesus? And I'm like, I don't, <laughs> so between you and I and the fence post, I didn't have a clue who Jesus was. <laughs> But for, for nearly $100, $100,000, I will love Jesus all day long. Absolutely. I'll love whoever you want me to love. I'll do whatever you want me to do. You're you're getting me a free ride to college? Sure. 
Yeah. So it started out with kind of like quasi lying that I yeah. had this relationship with Jesus. But two weeks in, we had chapel every day and yeah. uh, a preacher came in and, and you know, shared what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. And I was hook, line and sinker because Psalm 68 is what they talked about in that chapel. Psalm 68 says, I am the father to the fatherless. Oh. And it was that day that I'm like, oh my goodness, I do have a father. And so from that day forward, I've been as, as I'm trying to be the best child to my eternal father possible. Yeah. Uh, not because I feel like he's disappointed in me or I've got to please him just because I want to please him. Yeah. And uh, so that's kind of where my heart is. And that's where, where I, I came to faith. And uh, of course I went through all four years and then met my wife there, who's a strong believer. And then she is, she and church have been discipling me ever since. That is like so beautiful because I know that there's a lot of people who if they have, you know, an unhealthy relationship with their father or they don't have one or whatever, sometimes that's like a, a real sticky point for them when it comes to faith that, you know, like you walk into church and like God's described as like your father, your dad, and like they're picturing their earthly dad and they're like, mm, I don't really like that. Like, that's not a great image yeah. for me. You know what I mean? But for you to hear he's a father to the fatherless. You're like, that's me. That's me. Like, and it was like exactly what you needed to hear at the exact time. And that just spoke to you. I think that's so beautiful. It was a pretty powerful moment. And uh, I look back and I'm, I can see God's hand all over. So once you found Jesus and you felt like, okay, like I like have this newfound faith. I feel like I have, you know, a father, like I belong. Did you feel like it just immediately like flipped a switch and then all of the pain from your past and all of that dysfunction and all of that stuff just kind of like went away. And it was like, now I'm <laughs> like, I, all that's gone. And now I'm just like a fully functioning person. <laughs> well, you know, you know, darkness doesn't really know it's darkness until light is shined on it. So yeah. I, I didn't really realize how bad my past was because it was my normal. Yeah. So if you're always looking at a black and white TV, you don't know a black and white TV sure. is so ghetto until you get color. You don't even know standard definition is bad until you see HD. So, so for me, I didn't even know how messed up it was until I married into the Brady Bunch. Yeah. Now I married into the literally like perfect Christian family. We're all uh, old hands praying before a meal. And, and you're like, meal, what mom the and dad heck saying, is this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, it's surely this is a joke. Like, yeah, yeah, no yeah. No way. <laughs> mom and dad lean over and they say, yeah, honey, how did that make you feel? Oh, my like, no <laughs> way. This is, this is not happening. Yeah, like, this like, is too good to be true. They're faking it. Yeah. This is not real. Yeah. And so this goes back to like full circle when we started this conversation, when I said, you can't underestimate the power of just choices. Yeah. So I could have taken that moment where I was exposed to this new way of life and I could have been tremendously bitter. I could have, where was that my whole childhood and got this victim's mentality and been like, no, I can't believe I didn't have that when I was a kid. You just have all this. And I could have thrown it at her and had a bad attitude toward it. Or I could have said, this is all just fake garbage. Like, yeah. this is no way this is real. You guys are putting on a front. You know what? We can, and we all do it. We sure. all have these little bad attitudes that pop up from occasion. But if I'm looking back and you're truly asking the question of like, okay, how do you process all this? How do you, how do you reconcile all this? I could have at that moment turned into this bitter jerk and yep. just said, Hey, that's, that's great. This is no way this is real. Or I can be really inspired by it and say, you know what? I want to replicate this. I want my future home. So be like that in our home, and this may be extreme for some of you. 
we, we don't even really allow, when I say allow is not the right word because we don't really have like an allow culture, but we do like to like uh, encourage certain behavior yeah. and discourage other behavior. But like yelling to another person in another room of like, hey, mom, hey, Max, come here. Like we we just, we like a calm home. Yeah. Like we're not going to do that. It's not necessarily wrong. It's like mm-hmm. biblical or unbiblical or sure. right or wrong. It's just a calm, like what the, the world is unstable already too much. And there's yeah. instability everywhere. There's got to be somewhere where it just feels nice and calm and warm and stable. Like, hey, if you want to get someone's attention, respect them enough to go into the other room and get their attention in a calm way. Don't be yelling at each other. You got five people all yelling at each other, demanding each other's attention. So for me, yeah. that's a way where I feel like my past has shaped me that sure. I just, I, I want to say demand a calm environment, but I really encourage a calm environment for us to respect each other. Cause I grew up in a variety environment where there was tons of yelling. Mm-hmm. And so for me, yelling in the household is a trigger that things are not okay. Mm-hmm. My wife grew up with five kids in a family of seven and chaos and all of them, all in different activities and nothing's actually wrong. Totally. But they all are just yelling. Where's the hairbrush? Where's yep. the hair dryer? Hey, and it's like, it's not necessarily a trigger for her, but she respects me enough to say, hey, Chris, I understand. That's, that's a, um, like a trigger for me that mm-hmm. it recalls, it comes with it, a, an instability and a, like a, oh crap, like someone's going to, you know, there's a, a chapter in my book where my dad number two drives through the living room drunk. <sighs> like literally there's a sedan in the middle of my living room. And so for me, I, that raised volume to me yeah, um, brings with it a lot of instability and, and fear. So just, a, just one example of, um, of, of how that my childhood affects my, my, um, a more lighthearted one, <laughs> uh, a lighthearted one would be like, um, the, the baggage of a scarcity mentality. So we'll have a bunch of friends over, well, like eight to 10 friends over. And, uh, this is earlier my, my, uh, uh, marriage. I've, I've grown out of this, I promise. But uh, we'll have a bunch of food out on that counter. And for me, I, I grew up scarcity mindset. So I yeah. would just literally, I would, I'd fill a plate that is a mound high. I mean, just a mountain. And my wife's like, hey, here's what we do. <laughs> she like talks to me like a little kid, kind of like, okay, there's 15 people here. Yeah. Okay. So do the math in your head. Yes. What do the increments need to be for each one of us of the 15 people here? And totally. she had to like teach that to me. That, yes. that I think that had some baggage of like, hey, you you don't know if there's going to be food here for the next three or four days. You yes. get what you what you can get. So I, anyway, there's some there's definitely conflict management's another one as far as like stonewalling and having to work yeah. through conflict. So it, it definitely brings this baggage. But uh, for me, I try to really work on my baggage on the negative side, but mm-hmm. on the positive side, all of my focus is on transforming that pain into purpose for today. I just think that's so beautiful. Like just everything you said. And I just want to thank you like for being willing to be vulnerable enough with us to see, like, I think that's so huge how for you, you're able to acknowledge, like, I know that if someone's just yelling, like, hey, mom, blah, 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 from the other room, that's not bad. That's not like a sin. But to me, that's triggering because of things that I grew up with. And first of all, like how beautiful that your wife is like, oh, well, like that's not triggering to me, but I love you so much that I am going going to like absolutely back you up on that. You know what I mean? And like, Mm -hmm. we're not going to have yelling here, but I just think that that, and then the scarcity mindset stuff, the conflict, all of this, it just shows how 
God can absolutely like come into our lives and like help to heal us. And like someone like you, like you had this huge hole, like where that father was supposed to be, you know what I mean? And he was able to fill that. But like, we still do have this baggage. We still do have these foundational things that like are going to be with us. And I think that that's purposeful, right? Because if you just like found Jesus and it was like a snap of your fingers, nothing from your past ever came up again, nothing bothered you, it didn't matter, then like what would there be for you to help others? You know what I mean? Like what would you be using? What you know? And the fact that you still today have an emotional reaction to things that happened to you and things that still impact you today, that's purposeful. That's meaningful. That's beautiful. Like God can work through that with us and then you can help other people with it, you know? You know, I really try to be sensitive to people, whether they're faith-based or not. And I've brought that up four or five times because I just, I I have a heart for people regardless of whether, where they're at in their spiritual journey. And so, you know, if you think about it, just the idea of your past, all the things you've been through, your pains have been different than my pains. To think that all of that was for nothing. Yeah. I just don't get that. Like I think about it, even if like, if you believe in God or not, his history, the word history. It literally is his story. Yeah. And so like, if we're managing his story, this higher being, okay, whatever it may be, if we're managing that for like, for a reason, like we went through it for a reason, we can't go back and erase it. Yeah. We can't go back and like change, even if it's something that you did to yourself, maybe it's a personal regret of some, some mistake that you made. You can't go back and fix it. The only way we can make it better, because some of us would say we'd actually push it down and like we would uh, ignore it and like kind of squench it, put it under a rug and just act like you never No, it'll 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 fester. Yep. It'll show up. The only way that you can redeem it is to give it purpose. And so from a real practical standpoint, no matter what your pain is, whatever you went through, you now have that pain so that you have a new level of empathy for people that go through the same thing. There's a difference between sympathy and empathy. Yeah. We can all have sympathy and I feel sorry for you, but very few people, like all of us listening in, we all have these little lanes where we can have empathy, which empathy means you actually can put yourself in their shoes and feel the pain with them. Sympathy doesn't do that. Yeah, Empathy does that. And the only way that we can have empathy is if we've actually felt it before. Mm-hmm. And so for me, anything that I've been through, uh, most of our, uh, I'm a pastor at a church. And most of our, almost all of our outreaches are all geared toward uh, troubled homes yeah. and abused children. Yeah. And all, I mean, because we, I get, and I, the, most of our staff and most of our, um, our volunteers, I, you know, I attract people that are, have the same passions as me, just naturally. I don't do it on purpose. Of course. But yeah. we all have an empathy that other churches may not have because we've all been through it. We've all been through that trial. So I don't know, you know, whoever's listening in, I don't, I don't know what it is for you. But my prayer is, is that you would, I don't know, do some research, kind of write down on a piece of paper. What are the things I've been through and what, what are some of the things that I could actually transform? Some of these things that I, I actually kind of wrote down in my head as a negative, they actually can be a super big positive. And there's a, there's a I'm going on, I'm going, sorry about this, but I, no. I'm going on a little bit. I'm starting, starting to preach, but I love uh, it. There's, there's, <laughs> there's a verse in the Bible, Proverbs 11, 25. That says the generous will prosper. And a lot of folk, a lot of people focus in on that part. But the second part of that verse is so powerful. It says, those who refresh others themselves are refreshed. 
And a lot of times in this world today, we're like trying to find self-help and self-care. I need to get a massage. I need to go on a vacation. I need to, sure. I need to get a margarita. I need to, mm-hmm. I need whatever it may be, this whole, like, what can I do to refresh myself? Mm-hmm. <laughs> really? If you just look at the Bible from the standpoint of an ancient book of wisdom, mm-hmm. those who refresh others themselves are refreshed. And if we think about our experience, whether you're listening in and you're 14 or you're 38, um, in our experience, the parts of the times in our life where we've been the most refreshed are the times we were helping others. Mm. If we're honest, even if you're on a cruise and you're having a fun time on the cruise and you help somebody on the cruise sure, and you help someone like you're on the cruise and you help them in a really powerful way. That's probably one of the more fun parts that you had on the cruise yeah. because you weren't focusing on yourself. You're focusing on others. And that's what this book's about. It's like, whatever happened to us, how can we help others? It's so true. Like it's, it's so easy for us, I think, to look back on our lives and to think like, ugh, like I got dealt this hand or that hand or like that, you know, oh, I wish I didn't have this, you know, like something that's been like, I've talked about it a lot on my podcast is that I battled an eating disorder for a lot of years. And it's like something that I like, if I wished that like, if I could just snap my fingers and make this go away, like my whole life would be different. Like I would be so different. But since going through recovery and like being on the other side of that and opening up about what that journey was like for me and what my daily struggle still is to this day, I have been able to connect with so many people, you know what I mean? And so, and, and have amazing conversations with so many people. And when people say things to me, I can genuinely say to them, like, I totally know what you mean. I've been there, you know? And it's like, is it tempting to say like, oh, like I wish I could just magic wand this like away because this is like such a black spot in my life? Sure, that's tempting. But like really, would I really want to get rid of it? No, because like then I wouldn't have had this opportunity to talk to the amount of people that I've been able to talk to, you know, and like share with them and connect with them and hopefully help them, you know, like through encouragement, through my story, you know? So I just think it's so, you're so right. Like that that is so refreshing to use like use our story to help other people. Can you talk to me a little bit about your healing journey? So like you've said it, but like obviously we know that you went through a lot of trauma. You came to faith in college. You had a lot of mentors in your life. What types of things helped you work through like a lot of your baggage, a lot of your trauma to become like a healthy functioning adult? You're an amazing father, husband, like Tell me a little bit more about your healing journey. Yeah, so two two quick quicker answers, and then one that's a little more it takes time, some time to develop. Number one is, um, you know, I, faith and church has been huge for me. Um, number two, the proximity principle that I shared a yeah. little bit earlier. Um, but one uh, that that was surprised me. I've been very kind of anti counseling. I don't. I know it sounds really. I've just been very like, I can get over it. I'm good. Yeah. I'll read a book. I'll, there's got to be some kind of like article that I can just process. This sure. um, but as I dove in, I didn't want to write this book unless I actually could feel like I'm an expert on my story. Yeah. I don't want to write anything unless I'm an expert. And so you can't be an expert unless you dive into like the intricate details of the story, relive it, recall it, remember it, like get in there. What did it mean? Uh, I, I just wanted to dive in. So I wanted some professional counseling on how to process my story. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad I did because they, uh, the counselors flipped a lot of things on its head. Mm-hmm. Here's an example. We've talked so far a lot about 
uh, the trauma of not having a consistent father. Mm-hmm. A lot of emphasis on fatherhood so far. Uh, as I was processing all this fatherhood trauma with my counselor, this will come out of left field for all of us. It did for me. It blew my mind. <laughs> I, I was going like almost like day by day, week by week of what it was like to have these men going in and out of the home. And as I was talking about it um, with these counselors, I, in this one particular session, he said, what was life like when you didn't have a father around, when you were in between men? And I explained my role in the home as as early as like an eight-year-old. Mm-hmm. Well, as an eight-year-old at nine, 10, 11, all the way through adolescence, I was the man of the household. Mm-hmm. I was doing the laundry. I was taking the trash out. I was doing food prep. I was taking care of my baby brother. I was working outside the home for $3.50 an hour and bringing home $3.50 an hour and giving it to my mom so that she could buy narcotics. Uh, you know, like those are things that I did my entire childhood. Mm-hmm. I was the one that would get the food stamps that were way too many food stamps for a family of two and a half. And so what we would do is go to the, the local uh, uh, grocery store and I would sell them outside for pennies on the dollar so that we could have cash wow. so that she could buy narcotics. Ugh. And so this is the way that I grew up. She really relied on me to be able to provide for the home. And so I took that as a badge of honor of my yeah. mom, my hero. Uh, this one the survivor is relying on me for her survival. I'm the man of the house. And then here's where the trauma comes in. This is probably the one where it was more traumatic than any guy who's ever walked out of my life. A guy would walk in that she's known for an hour. A guy would walk in that she's known for two days. And she would just say, go play with your toys. Uh, go watch the Braves game. We got like two channels. We got WGN and we got TBS. So I grew up watching the Braves and watching the Cubs. Go watch the game. Go watch Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Go watch yeah. Short Circuit. Go watch one of those old shows on TBS. And um, she would literally ignore me for three weeks until that guy was gone. And that guy would be gone and uh, would literally tear up our house and beat the mess out of her. And then the next day it would be like, hey, why don't you sleep, you know, sleep in the bed with me? Mm. And, um, and, I would be the one that, and not in an inappropriate way, but be the no. one that has to comfort her sure. as she falls asleep and, and and she wakes up. And then, do you know what I'm saying? I mean, that's- A hundred percent. I had no idea that <sighs> that was the height of the trauma. Like, and for, so you go back to your question. Yeah. Those of you that are dealing with some pretty significant pain. Yeah. We talk about investing all the time in this world. Hey, are you investing for retirement? Are you investing for this? Are you investing that? How are you leveraging this economy? Are you getting into real estate? How much are you investing in yourself? Yeah. I know it's $150 an hour. I know. And it took me forever. But I am so glad that I invested in myself because I'm a way healthier person. And even though you guys can hear through the microphone, you can hear you can hear the emotion. I, I do feel like it's from a healthy place. I don't, Absolutely. I, don't feel, I feel very healthy. I feel healthy talking about it. But I don't want to cut off my emotions. No, And so for me, it's, um, it was a very, very healthy investment. I'm glad I did. And I feel like I'm actually making better, uh, emotional choices, relational choices, um, financial choices. I'm actually making better investment choices because I'm in a healthier place. And yeah. so uh, that would be the question would be the easy ones are church and proximity principle. Yeah. But uh, one that snuck up on me was the power of counseling. 
Yeah, I think that is so huge. And you're right. Like that is that is so mind blowing because it's like when you hear your story, it's like, oh, yeah. So like for sure there's daddy issues or you know what I mean? But it's like a counselor can help you dig deeper into like there's more there, you know, and I think that that's really that shows so much about your character that you were like, I don't want want to write a book about my story without going through counseling, which like seems counterintuitive, right? Like it's your story. Like what would a counselor know better about your story than you? Like you could just sit down and write about it. That's so huge that you went through the counseling first and like really, really dug in there to really understand like the intricacies of like what went on and how it impacts you today and stuff like that. I think that that's just like, Amazing. This is like an amazing commercial for counseling. Like for real. I think that's so fantastic. Mm-hmm. Counseling has completely changed my life, my husband's life. I'm such a proponent. What would you say to somebody who's listening to this and they're thinking like, wow, like his story is like, wow, like that's like, you know, really dramatic. My, You know, I don't really, I haven't really been through something quite as dramatic as that. Like I had a pretty normal childhood, never did anything super crazy. Like I'm pretty normal. What would you say to them in terms of like your book? Why is your book still for those people who haven't been through something that's quite as, you know, like a television show. You know what I mean? I, I don't know who knows this and who doesn't, but I just came out of a season where I was working alongside a guy named Dave Ramsey. Yeah. Uh, Dave Ramsey's a, a kind of a voice in the personal finance uh, space. And my goal, my, my role at the church or at the, at his, uh, at his ministry was to be his voice to the church and more specifically to be his voice to, um, uh, to raise up this banner of what's called stewardship. And so I, I know that's a word that everyone kind of naturally equates to money, but it doesn't, it isn't about money at all. It's actually about the heart behind money. And so if you were to define the word stewardship, it is managing God's blessings, God's way for God's glory. That's what it means. And so if we take this principle that we start off in this whole conversation about literally managing your past for purpose. Okay. Yeah. So let's just take that out of the, the God part and just purpose in general, for those of you that aren't, you know, aren't necessarily there on the face side, regardless of whether it's pain, let's take it. Let's, let's pull up 30,000 feet, your gifts, your experiences, your relationships, your sphere of influence, what can, whatever you've been exposed to in your past, maybe you've been there for somebody or you've been around some pain, um, but whatever, what in your story, whether that's 14 years or 68 years, What in your story can you leverage? What nutrients can you suck out of your past so that you can help your current today, your sphere of influence or your sphere of influence in the past? I mean, in the future, Um, my heartbeat behind this book was and the the heartbeat behind the counseling is not so I can necessarily just be an expert in my story. I did want that. I wanted that for healthiness, for sure. But I have a genuine what they call in the ministry world, they call a shepherding heart. I'm not really a. I'm not really wired to be a speaker or a podcast host, although I've done those things. And, but I have a, a shepherd's heart, a true, like somebody who wants to nurture a, a heart um, of a group of people. And so for me, in my mind, it's the reader. I owe it to the reader to know what I'm talking about and to be able to not only give them a book that'll that'll uh, inspire them in the story, but I want to give them some super practical handles on how they can uh, experience the freedom that I've experienced. Whatever it is in your life, was a small pain, a middle-sized pain, a big pain, 
Um, and, and this is the problem in our culture today too, Caitlin, is this whole comparison thing. Mm-hmm. So now that I've given you some pretty dramatic pain in my life, mm-hmm. our natural tendency is to compare my pain to, to yours. Totally. And, uh, no, here's the deal. There's no, big pain to you is big pain to you. Totally. It has nothing to do with how it compares to my pain. There's another pain outside of You want to get into real pain? Let's get into third world pain. Let's yeah. get into Haiti. Let's get into Peru. Let's get into uh, Katrina for Louisianans. Back in, there's yep. some real pain that's out there. So uh, for me, this is real pain for me. What is the real pain for you? And so if it's a big deal in your life, you better believe that the deal is the enemy has not been throwing out these new kinds of pains in every generation. He's mm-hmm. got these main five to 10 buckets mm-hmm. that all look different in different generations, but it's the same pain. It's relational pain, emotional pain, intellectual pain, mental pain, a physical pain, uh, financial pain. It's the same buckets. And so for us, it's just whatever it is in your life, leverage it, managing God's blessings, God's way for God's glory. And you say, Chris, it's not a blessing. All right. You're getting me preaching again. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Think about this. The whole emotion of joy or happiness. It no longer is a mountaintop of joy and happiness unless it comes up from somewhere. A mountaintop of joy and happiness, think about it in your mind, visually, it's no longer a mountain. It's a plateau. Mm -hmm. You have to be coming up from a valley, a negative emotion. Our pain and our negative emotions are just part of life and they're necessary. We will never feel these great nirvanas of joy and hope and all the positive things that we love so much and we strive after, unless there's the the, the negative side of that. And that totally. is, and I don't call it negative, that's the wrong word, but yeah. the, the opposite of, sure. or the yeah. antithesis of, uh, we've got, we've got to have the valleys mm-hmm. and we can actually use our valleys to evoke joy because we're helping people with what we learned when we were in the valley. Yeah. Pretty, that's pretty fun. Oh, that's so good. I know at your church now, you guys have like something that you say, like generosity is our norm, just what something, right? Like generosity is a huge thing for you guys. And I think that that is so interesting, you know, coming from somebody who grew up with nothing, right? And like that scarcity mindset, like you said, it impacted you into adulthood and it could still impact you today if you let it, you know what I mean? That it would be easy for you to think like, okay, like I have what I need now. I got to hold on to it. I got to hold on to it. I got to protect it, right? Because it's scary. How did you kind of like adopt this posture of like, no, like generosity, that's who we are. That's what we do. Like this is in our everyday. It's in our, like the fiber of who we are. Yeah. So there's a great quote by Winston Churchill that says, we make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. Mm-hmm. And it is so true. It, it really is just reworded Proverbs eleven twenty five. We refresh ourselves by refreshing others. And so I've just seen this in my life. I've, the most fun times in my life, I had this great, beautiful home, best home I've ever lived in, gorgeous home. And if I were to tell you all the dynamics of the home, some of you listening in would be like, that's a small home. And some of you would say it's a huge home. So sure. it's all relevant. Yes. But it was absolutely gorgeous to me. It was amazing. We lived in it for six months and I really enjoyed it. I would say I was a level seven or eight on the overall lifetime satisfaction scale. Like I was mm-hmm. pretty darn, actually at that moment, I would say I was even a 10. Mm-hmm. And then I had this bonus room, 400 square feet, never walked in it because really the, the, the home was probably two and a half times bigger than we needed. Mm-hmm. Family of five, 
but we had rooms we never walked in. And uh, this family that was that, that my, my wife met, that this is in the book as well, met at the bus stop, had a very similar situation as I had when I was a kid. There was a time, remember I told you about the, the car driving through the living room? Yeah. And uh, I had just got a brand new puppy. And that dad was going to be getting out of jail very soon after that, you know, a couple of days, maybe after he paid, posted bail. And we knew we had to get out of there. Who's going to kill us. And so we moved to California. Well, I can't take a puppy with me to California. I couldn't even believe I had a puppy. I've been begging my mom for years. Finally had this puppy. Ginger, which I know that sounds really like not a big deal, but to a kid who that's all you have. Absolutely. And that was my only source of companionship was this puppy in the middle of chaos. It was a really big deal. So I had to give up the puppy. Anyway, fast forward to this house. My wife, I met this couple or this couple at the bus stop and uh, had a similar situation. The dad uh, left them high and dry, single mom, two kids, and uh, they had nowhere to go. They had no way to pay rent. She had never worked before, didn't know how to get, she couldn't get a job near for the rent that they needed. Mm. And uh, immediately they needed a place to go without even thinking about it. I'm like, y'all just move in with us. Got this bonus room. Let's go for it. Yeah. And um, they had a bunch of animals. My wife was like, Chris, they have like a bunch of animals, like a, a, a lizard and a snake oh and my gerbils God. And, and, and turtles and, and birds. And I was like, oh. and immediately all I thought was about when someone took ginger from me in a similar situation. Yeah. And for me, it was transforming the sting of that past. I'm like, to this kid, I'm like, dude, of course you bring every single animal you got, buddy. Oh. And <laughs> So we had one room where they lived as a family, this amazing family lived in our bonus room. And then there was this like walk-in closet off the bonus room where it was going to turn into a the sanctuary animal room. for yeah. birds. <laughs> yes. But, but th- th- that's, that's really the heartbeat behind it, that generosity. And I don't want that to be abnormal for us. I don't want that to be like, yeah. wow, you're yep. generous. No, for our church, I want generosity to be our norm. Yeah. Because generosity is actually a natural byproduct of gratitude. Generosity is the currency of gratitude. It is uh, Generosity is gratitude in action. When you truly are grateful for what you've been given, it just naturally makes you want to give. So you think about the Starbucks line. What do you do? Somebody pays for your coffee in front of you without even thinking about it. Most people, now there are about 5% of people that are jerks and won't pay it forward. But what do you do? You don't even think about it. You say, oh my gosh, that's awesome. I want to pay for the person behind me. Totally. You don't even think about it. Totally. It's a reflex. Yes. So if you live a life truly grateful for what you've got, it automatically just makes you want to give. So generosity is actually not something we should be wowed about. Generosity should actually just be our norm because we live grateful lives. Yeah. When you are around someone that's just naturally, it's it's not like they're trying. They're just naturally so generous with what they have. It, it, absolutely rubs off onto you, you know, and like you want to do the same and it's just like, it's so infectious and it's just amazing. I just, Chris, I cannot thank you enough for sharing with us, sharing your story with us, just your journey. Everybody go get his book restored. You can get it. I mean, I would say like, where can you get your book? But it's like Amazon. Hello. Like we, we know now where you can buy books, where else can we find you online? I said it at the beginning, but tell us like your website, your Instagram, all the things. Yeah. So Chris Brown on air, it's really easy on all social media handles and my website. So that's why I chose Chris Brown on air. Yes. And, uh, and you know, Amazon, I think is probably the best deal right now. 
And then, you know, I actually, just cause I was curious cause I wrote it 18 months ago and I was just curious and I didn't narrate it. So I actually personally listened to the audible and it's a really good product. So oh, good. Excellent. Um, the, the audible is available for, I think another $2 cheaper. So it's a, a pretty good version. And I just, that last thought that I had, Caitlin, I know this kind of throws off the format, but uh, just a little challenge for all of us, because yes. I really believe in that last concept we talked about, about when you're grateful for what you got, it makes you want to give. I don't know everyone's budget, but just a challenge for all of us, myself included, to budget every month, whatever that amount is, of just free generosity above and beyond. If you yes. some of you guys give to your church, this is above, let's just say it's 50 bucks. Maybe it's 20, maybe it's, maybe it's 10. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And you break that up into increments. Maybe it's $5 increments, $10, $20, whatever it is for your budget amount. And you just have it in your pocket or your purse all month. And you just look for opportunities for a $5 handshake, mm-hmm. a $10 handshake with a 10 year old. Just pay attention to what happens in your spirit. I promise you, it's the most fun you'll have all month. You'll get addicted to it and you'll actually you'll up the budget the next month and you yeah. probably will never stop doing it. Just make that a intentionally at the beginning of the month, whatever it is, $100. Some of you guys listening in, you could probably do a thousand. I don't know. Yeah. But whatever it is, it's just, it's not even about the amount. Mm-hmm. It's when you look at their face and you see them light up, those who refresh others themselves are refreshed. I love that. I love that. You know, my husband, and his family, like they're naturally like such generous people. And you know, it's interesting, like my mother-in-law, especially, like, I just feel like I've learned so much from her. Like she, she didn't have it easy. Like when my husband was young, she lost two children. Like they've been through a lot and she's always doing for other people. You know, she had a child with severe cerebral palsy for 30 years that she had to carry her everywhere. Like this was intense care that she had to give this child constantly. She was letting people live with them, giving for other people, doing things for others. She's naturally so generous. And that's something that I've like latched onto with his family, right? Like since we've been married, just like, wow, like I want this to be so much a part of us. And so my husband and I make sure that we budget in every month, like a line item for gifts. Right. And so sometimes it's like, you know, like, oh, my kid's invited to a birthday party, but like, there's always enough in there for to send someone a meal, to send, you know, whatever, you know, when you hear of a need and it feels so good to be able to like do that for somebody and not feel like, Oh, I wish we could, but we don't, we don't have the money to find the money. You know what I mean? And I love your idea about having just like the cash on you. I'm going to do that next month. Just like (laughs) using that line item and like have the cash on me to just like brighten someone's day. Just be generous with someone. I, I love that. I love that so much. I just think it can change everything around. I love that. This has been fabulous, beyond fabulous. I just thank you so much for taking time out to talk to us. This is amazing. People can find you online. We'll have everything linked in the show notes, the book, all the things. Thank you so much, Chris. Yes, an honor. Thanks, Caitlin. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CaitlinElliott.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And hey, if you want to toss us a five-star rating, I would love you forever. Check us out next week for another new episode. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at so.what.else. Editing and all that stuff by Matt Carpenter with Parable Productions. <laughs>